even the shitting, pissing jokes, they're there in the 12th and 14th century texts. For me, it's the same traditions that have been brought into things that are relevant now. Instead of rice wine, maybe they're getting drunk on Jack Daniels or something. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 46th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I usually release an episode every week, but for those of you following along at home, you may have noticed that we took last week off. We here at PCL were participating in Blackout Tuesday, a collective silencing to protest racism and police brutality and allowing space for the amplification of the voices of people of color in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. We're back this week, but you'll find in our show notes links to podcasts, books, and organizations to which to donate to help educate ourselves and support and cultivate anti-racism. Please give them your attention, and if you can, your money. Black Lives Matter. My guest this week is Jason Fu, an Australian artist whose practice includes painting, drawing, sculpture, video, performance, and of course, printmaking. Jason grew up in Sydney, Australia, the child of Chinese immigrants, and his work explores the immigrant experience, cross-generational communication, language, poetry old and new, and alcohol. Often using humor as a device to explore all of these experiences. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get poetic with Jason Fu. Hi, Jason. How's it going? Good. Thanks, Miranda. Great to, great to be chatting to you. I know. I feel like it's been a really long time, almost as long as when we used to live in different countries. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think a lot of people feel that way, actually. Yeah. I think the last time we saw each other was at at Omar Musa's exhibition. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. How's um how's your quarantine going? It's good. It's good. So I'm just saying my parents lost all my work for the yeah. year. Um. So um. Yeah. Uh. There's a, I've got a no rent, no food bill, no power bill. No responsibilities bill um, <laughs> house here. Um, but also I was halfway through my residency in um, Sydney at Animal Logic. So thought I'd just ride out coronavirus with my parents and their delicious cooking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure like what our generation of artistic people would do without our parents and <laughs> their steady force. Like the amount of yeah, times, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how people do it without. Yeah, I, I have to stay at my parents probably once every two years. I have to spend a couple months at them at their place. Um, a lot of times coming back from um, Thailand, actually, mm-hmm. um, spending time at Cap Studio with Kong. Totally, I think that's absolutely the the life of a working artist. And I definitely want to make sure that we get a chance to chat a little bit about CAP because 
that is definitely a place where you and I have spent the most time together and I've actually gotten to have a little bit of a view into your process when we've been there at the same time. But before we dive in completely to things, would you mind telling everyone listening who may not know uh, who you are, where you are, and what you do? Um, so my name's Jason Fu. It's a P-H-U. I'm an artist, and uh, I think I started out with printmaking and sort of I've always done a bit of drawing and painting as well, but then moved into installation, performance, video, ceramics. So, yeah, a bit of, bit of everything. But um, So I'm in Sydney right now where I'm from, mm-hmm. Sydney, Australia, not Sydney in Canada, <laughs> um, which is ha- funny story because I studied in Nova Scotia and apparently um, these two Swedish people called a flight to Sydney and <gasps> were amazed how cheap it was. And we're really excited. Oh, and no. they went, yeah, they went, yeah. <laughs> it was a, a very sad story for them. But I'm, I'm sure Sydney in Canada is really lovely as well. Yeah, anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm in Sydney, Australia. Uh-huh. Um, I've been based in Melbourne for uh, probably six months before that. Um, so I'm living in Melbourne, but I'm in Sydney right now. Um, and here for the foreseeable future um, until the coronavirus lets up in this country and around the world, I guess. And what I do, yeah, I'm, so I'm a practicing artist, um, working in those mediums. But uh, I think printmaking was the first, was my major in my uh, undergraduate studies at College of Fine Arts, COFA, in Sydney. And it's always held um, yeah, a special place in my heart. And I feel like I couldn't not say that, but it is, it is truthful. Um, yeah. And so you were saying you were growing up in Sydney, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that was like and the role of art had in your life when you were a kid. Yeah, Sydney, I grew up in um, Croydon Park, Sydney. It's sort of in the inner west. It's a very family suburb, um, lots of houses, no one in the street in the middle of the day. very boring place. So art didn't really play any role in my childhood. I, I liked cartoons and comics. Um, I hope a lot of cartoonists and comics don't think that what I'm calling what they do is an art. But mm. um, I, I never went to any galleries or museums or anything. So it didn't really play a role. And I just liked drawing cartoons and stuff. And then, yeah, I, I don't know why I got into art. I was never particularly inclined that way I did consider doing an engineering degree but my art teacher um, really convinced me and had to sort of convince my parents that I should do art and so I sort of picked it in a way Mm. yeah just because a teacher said so and it's funny because printmaking we had to do sort of six different mediums um, in our first year at university and I I picked printmaking because the printmaking teacher was the only teacher that went, oh, you're pretty good at this. You should pick printmaking. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just do that then, I guess, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm easily swayed. You know? <laughs> I could have been a, a rooster farmer. I don't know if they exist. I don't think you can farm roosters. Can you? Yeah. But, yeah. I feel like that could be good advice to any 
teacher out there who maybe has a dwindling print department at their university that they want to stoke, just just tell every student, you know, hey, you're you're pretty good at this. You should consider doing well, this. Well, I, I think I think that's why kids pick things and do things because, I mean, for me personally, I think it was really great. My parents never said you can be whatever you want to be. Mm-hmm. But they did always say, whatever you want to do, if you work hard at it, you'll be okay. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I think there's a big distinction there. And I think it's really good. It's just like, it's, you know, sometimes you pick your path, sometimes you don't. But whatever it is, just have a crack at it. Sort of mm-hmm. thing. So, yeah. yeah, that's what I did, you know. Yeah. Just sort of fell into the arts, I guess. Yeah. And so you came to printmaking, it sounds like when you were at university and just taking a variety of art classes and that was where you got your, your positive feedback and decided to stick with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did do some liner cuts in high school, but I feel like that's very much part of um, a curriculum in most high schools, you know, that or um, potato, potato stamps. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the technical term i'm sure there's a french term for it like i think le it's potato le potato stamp, le yeah <laughs> yeah yeah there you go uh yeah uh, but print that was my first taste of it was actually etching so it's an etching class um it was with geraldine berkemeyer that's an ed mm. i remember that yeah because I, I came from a chinese vietnamese an asian background migrant background so my parents weren't particularly happy i did art Mm. And most of my friends who came from a similar background, their parents would have just said no, like mm. outright sort of thing. But yeah, I think my dad had a little chat to me and he was like, you know, if you did commerce or something else, you'd have a job. But mm. if you did art, you don't really have a job when you come out. And But he said, look, we, we support your decision as long as you work hard at it. And it's what they've always told me. And I, I've tried to and honour that, you know, yeah. and just work hard at what I've done. But, um, I mean, my mum, her family was, you know, uh, parents were in the theatre. Oh, okay. um, her brothers uh, did a bit of writing, but they had jobs and stuff as well. Um, but she was a bit more inclined to say yes, but she also sort of said the same thing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, because I was going to ask what, you thought it was about your parents that maybe made them kind of more open to their son taking this different path. But was it maybe just your mother's experience having family in the arts and seeing that one can make a life out of that? I'd say actually, no. I'd Mm. say that support from her came probably after university um, when I was, you know, exhibiting more. Mm-hmm. Her, I think both their viewpoints and why a lot of my friends' parents as well had that is, you know, coming from tougher circumstances, knowing things can change any time and that, you know, often people's dreams and desires had to take a back seat coming from those um, tougher circumstances and that having something stable, you know, could definitely help you ride out anything that might happen. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it came from a pure economic point of view. Was that we we were not a we weren't a rich family, but we you know I was an only child. We always had enough to 
um, money to sort of, you know, live mm-hmm. um, comfortably. So I think that played a big role because I, I can't imagine encouraging, you know, my kids to <laughs> pursue this career path <laughs> if I didn't feel like I could, you know, have some sort of safety net for them. Sort of yeah. Yeah, I think it's a very difficult thing. But, you know, I, I think also the I don't want to just put it to those pure terms. They've always been really supportive parents. And mm-hmm. even things like staying at their house every couple of years for three months. Yeah. Not all parents sort of want that, <laughs> which I can understand. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, they've definitely been a rock in my art career. So yeah. not, a, not a rock in the shoe, like yeah. a... Like a rock, I can't. I can't actually think of a good positive thing a rock can do. But you know, uh, foundation. Yeah, 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 yeah. The foundation, and yeah. Tim and I joke quite often about if we have kids, how we'll just try and kind of get them to hate printmaking. Like we'll have them grain litho stones as punishment, and so that way they'll be like, "Screw you, mom and dad! I'm going to go be a patent lawyer." And then they can, you know, offer us the stability. I want a doctor. That's what I'm saying. You know, when <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, doctor kid, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's the artists need to be sandwiched between people, like generations that made logical decisions um, in terms of economics, is that, you know, stable parents, artistic child, stable child, you know, and then so on. So I think it's, that's the only it's way. It's only works. logical. Yeah. 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 Um, well, when I was sort of preparing for the interview and our chat today, I was thinking about it, and we met at the SGCI in San Francisco, but I realized I'm not sure that we've ever had a really in-depth discussion about your work. So I'm actually really excited to get a chance to pick your brain about it a little bit. If I think about it, I don't, I don't think I've had an in-depth conversation about any of my friends' works. It's just sort of... Yeah. You sort of get to know it on a different level, you know, through friendship sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. And in a way, it's easier for me to write questions for people who I don't know because I know your work through you. And I see it as, you know, really two sides of that coin. And so, but when you're just coming to someone completely fresh, you've got that beginner's mind, you know, to engage with the work with it. So I think it's going to be really interesting because I've tried to come up with questions that will kind of almost help people see your work maybe the way I do, which is, you know, an extension of you. So we'll see how successful I was, but hopefully we'll be able let's, to have Let's see. Let's chat. roll the dice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's just, let's go crazy and dive in. And thinking about it, because I know that, as you touched on before, you have a lot of other sides of your practice. You do video and performance and painting and drawing. But I first knew you in sort of through printmaking. And last year, when I was working a little bit at Sakata Press, trying to organize all of the prints that are there, I got to see, I think, probably what were some of your early etchings, which was really interesting because I feel like you can kind of see the seeds of the evolution of your work, which is great when that happens with with an artist's work. So one of the things I was thinking about particularly was it has these, you know, more simple forms and it's one figure or two figures and it's accompanied by a little bit of a phrase or two. 
And the mm-hmm. one I was thinking of in particular where there were two fish and it actually says, two fish float in the water. One fish says, I will be eaten by a human. The other one says, I will be eaten by a bigger fish. Yeah. Yeah. The tiny, the tiny one. Yeah. Like, a yeah. really small little guy. Yeah. And while your work has definitely changed and evolved, I think a lot of it you'll kind of see with a bit of that same formula where you'll get one figure or two figures and there's a little bit of a narrative, a little bit of a poetry feel to it, almost a little bit of a proverb kind of a feel. And so I guess this question is seeing it even early on in your work and seeing the thread as it's gone through, how did you kind of find this formula? How did you find yourself creating this mix of words and images that have that really particular feel to it that I associate with being very Jason? I, I find that, yeah, I like to always say that whatever I do is just sort of an extension of something that I had as a, as a kid or that's something I'm interested in. So I get asked quite a lot about text and artwork and mm-hmm. I think the traditional in quotation marks because it's a false traditional viewing history from a false lens. Traditional view of art is, you know, pretty pictures of paintings and stuff and there's not often text in them. And that we view coming back to cartoons and comics. We mm. view cartoons and comics and pictures with words as something of a lower grade of art, mm. I guess. Especially pictures with words is not just comics but children's books. So for me Text in art is its not an unusual thing and something we've all grown up with. And then if I'm going to take it into, I guess, my cultural background, you know, calligraphy in art, in um, Chinese art, is often the calligraphy that's accompanying the picture is, if not just as important, more important. Mm-hmm. And often the picture is the accompaniment to the text that's on there. So I guess from that point of view, it's a very, very, very normal thing just to have a bit of text. And that I think it's sort of been weeded out of our system that it's normal. Or it's this, you know, controversial contemporary new art. Oh, uh-huh. just text, you know. Uh-huh. But for me as well, I mean, Chinese text, because Chinese is a logographic language, it's a pictorial language. So every word is a little picture anyway, you know. Yes, it's just part of the... When I write words, I don't see text as much as, you know, just part of the composition or the Mm -hmm. painting or whatever, you know, it's just another line. If we're going to talk about the proverbs, I I guess I grew up with a lot of them. It's not uncommon. It's very... I think often it does get mysticized a bit, this idea of this oriental old man stroking his beard sort Mm -hmm. of saying a proverb, but it's a very common um, thing amongst language that people would just say proverbs in the middle of the speeches. And and it's common in, I think, a lot of different languages. Um, it's just that the Chinese stuff is very mysticized, and mm. maybe a lot of the Australian slang stuff isn't as much. You know? right. But yeah, I think also I, I do like to be a contrarian talking about these things. For me, the reason is that it's just so, so people might be able to see things a different way and not get so rooted into these same thought processes of, oh, text and art, oh, proverb, oh, mm. whatever. But I, I do find, yeah, 
it's just what comes natural. I didn't really pick doing it, I guess. And I think just from what knowing you and the conversations that we have had, just in general, but also about art, I feel like particularly when it comes to the text in your work, it seems to be always kind of walking this line between being very meaningful and being totally meaningless in this way where if you go to the text wanting to find something profound in it, you can find it. Or it can almost be just surrealist. And I don't know if that's something that you find in your work or you intentionally curate, but that's actually something that I've always appreciated about it is that there's nothing that is heavy-handed or didactic about the words that you use in your work. Yeah, I, I think that comes a lot from how I was raised and how my parents talked about things. They're, they're not religious people, but I guess... So my dad's Vietnamese, but he's Chinese-Vietnamese, and um, culturally, both of them, you know, the tenets of Chinese culture are Buddhism, Taoism, um, Confucianism, you know, they were always there, but they always never made me abide by anything. So, mm. you know, they were important things that were important until they sort of interfered with my daily life. Sort of thing. And and especially with Chan Buddhism, a lot of the teaching is about non-teaching. Um, so it's about sort of breaking free of the teachings sort of thing. It's about um, the absurdity of things as a, way, as a sort of pathway to enlightenment. So there's a lot of, if you read, I've been reading some of the like 12th, 14th century texts of Taoism, and you know, you think there is some sort of wisdom in there, but then you're like, these people just, you know, had serious mental health issues. <laughs> the, the texts are completely nonsensical. They're like, I took out my eyeball and I swung it like a bat and it was on fire and then I threw it into the sky. Right. In some sort of reading, yeah, I'm sure we could we could find some wisdom in there, but we could find some wisdom at the bottom of a cup of tea mm-hmm. or on a, in a blank wall or a tree we walk by. Yeah, you can find reason and wisdom in anything and nothing. So it's sort of irrelevant. I guess that's what the point of all of it is. So... Mm. But as well, you know, I, I do live in this world. I do, you know, think I have ethics and morals and um, I can't escape how I was raised or my experiences I've had in life. So it's not all completely nonsensical, you know. And I think that when you were talking earlier about the, the Chan Buddhism, I had originally heard you talk about that during a talk that you gave with Kitty Kong in Melbourne, I guess, at some point last year. And that always really stuck with me, this idea that there could be a whole system of thought that is based around interacting with the world through the lens of absurdity. Because so many systems of thought are about making sense, finding balance, organizing when I think the natural state of the world is chaos and absurdity and I just love the idea that I didn't really know anything about it other than what you said about it but just this 
this thought that there is a way out there that there can be wisdom in that absurdness that we have to experience like every once in a while when everyone has to go back home and live with their parents and stop going to work because we could accidentally kill ourselves by picking our nose at the grocery store right now. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, no one could have predicted that sort of thing. I think all our sort of predictions have been about this, you know, insane world war. I mean, these things could still happen, but who would have predicted it would be, yeah, from picking your nose too much, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So considering that text and words and all of that are are so, so wed to your practice, do you think of yourself as a poet or a writer as well? Or is it just kind of all under the umbrella of being an artist? Um, Yeah, I had always wanted to be a writer since I was 20. Mm. Um, but I could never really write that well. One of the skills you do need to be a writer is to write well. It's funny um, that but way, yeah. I started, <laughs> yeah. I started, I don't know why, I started making my titles longer and longer mm-hmm. until some were about three or four lines long. Got a lot of complaints from gallery managers <laughs> and people trying to write up room sheets, but uh-huh. they just became longer and longer. And then I think I sort of got into it by accident. I I feel like a lot of my life has been almost subconsciously to trick myself into doing something, you know, Hmm. Um, doing printmaking just because someone said so, doing art just because a teacher wanted me to do it, Um, writing, you know, these longer and longer paragraphs till till they were short stories. Yeah, it's, it's just this sort of, I mean, I feel like print, the process of printmaking, you know, there's this layer of illusion and tricking yourself because you're not really doing the work, but you are, you know, mm. doing the work to the matrix. And then, you know, is the printing process the actual work? Is the finished product the work? Or, you know, is cleaning the plate the work? It's, it's sort of, they're all just little processes that, are sort of meaningless by themselves. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, if you're doing a drawing on a piece of paper, you're you're drawing. That's it. You know, you're drawing on the piece of paper, sort of thing. But you know, printmaking is like I feel like it's like tricking yourself into cooking something really nice by mm. you know heating up some oil, chopping up some things, and putting everything together. You know. Mm. Um, so yeah, I forgot what I forgot what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I might have forgotten what my question was. I was so I was I was there with you chopping up the um the chopping vegetables. Up the garlic and yeah, the I was yeah, like yeah, yeah, I was yeah, wanting yeah. to eat something, yeah. Um oh I'd asked if you thought of yourself as a poet or a writer. That was what I was curious about and yeah. Um no, but maybe a bit more now. So mm-hmm. I have had um through my artwork I have had some people in the poetry world commission me to do things. So mm. I feel really lucky to be able to have done that. And But I feel like it maybe was the only way to have done that. And that if I'd pursued a career as a writer, it would have ended in failure. You know, and then writing might be a way for me to open the dumpling shop I've always wanted yeah. by accident. You know? Yeah, yeah. By talking about how much I love to eat dumplings or something. So... <laughs> 
I'm happy to follow this path wherever it goes, but right now my my you know, if we're gonna very crassly um talk about what I identify as uh for my job then through my income, then more of my income is coming from writing. So mm. um I guess I'm becoming more of a writer now as much as an artist. So that yeah, that's a this nice thing that's happening and then I've happened to started uh, teaching workshops more as well, which I thoroughly enjoy. So, mm. you know, that's that's part of my life as well. So, yeah, yeah I, I think, yeah, I, I would say I'm a little bit of a poet. Yeah, not as not as much as uh, Omar Musa. Though. Yeah, I know. I felt he's, like it's... He's, he's the OG, the real one, <laughs> you know, real deal out there. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a weighty question when we're going on the heels of Omar, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I also think we should talk about too that the the words and the poetry that appear in your work of course aren't just in english but you use chinese text and chinese characters and you've studied calligraphy in china but there's also kind of a funny side when you do use the chinese characters in your work and it's a bit of play of mistranslation and miscommunication and you really kind of leaning into the fact that as someone who's a first generation of immigrants who were fluent, how your handle on the language is not that of total fluency. And you, rather than kind of shy away from that, you definitely use it as part of the composition. And I'm just hoping you can talk about that a little bit as well. Yeah, so for me, it's an issue of, authenticity mm. whatever that word means so I'm um, I do speak Mandarin fluently um, I have lost a lot of my vocabulary I'm um, just from not speaking it here in Australia mm-hmm. and I used to know how to read and write but I can't do it from memory anymore but whenever I relearn the characters to write from calligraphy I know it for a couple of weeks right. and then generally I'll start to forget it very quickly because it's not something I regularly um, write and use. Again, because it is a pictorial language, you know, each character is a different picture. It's not like learning 26 sort of um, letters and then being able to sort of pronounce things. But for me, when I I do a few different things and I translate, sometimes I do know all the characters, so I just write them. Sometimes I'll just literally Google Translate a chunk of something Mm. if I feel like it and sometimes I'll be I'll translate with my mom which is very interesting because she'll try to switch a lot of my words and go oh that's not the best word to use that's you know grammatically incorrect but for me it's about going well that's not how I would say it that becomes someone else's words right yeah and then tying that in with the idea of calligraphy I always thought I needed to go to China to learn calligraphy to be authentic. And when I got there, a lot of the artists were like, why are you looking for a calligraphy teacher, you know? Mm. You already make contemporary art. Your art's sort of good. Why do you need to learn this thing? We've learned it and now we can't unlearn the brushstrokes. It's really hard to sort of untrain your hand to do things. So that was really a wake-up call for me, you know, as a young artist going over thinking I had to do this thing but then the contemporary artists there 
um, were like, why are you even learning this thing? I think I still went ahead and learnt um, a little bit, but for me, that, the idea for that was it doesn't doesn't hurt to learn a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't learn for 30 years in a school or something. But then when I thought about, you know, we don't expect contemporary landscape painters in Australia to all have gone to Venice, you know, to learn mm-hmm. the egg tempura method or <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you, you call it. They I know they use like egg whites or some shit. Yeah, it sounds good. Egg tempura <laughs> sounds official. You know, we, we accept contemporary art from... Um, Western artists as contemporary art. They don't have to have learned some particular amazing skill. But with calligraphy, there's often the sense of, oh, which ancient, you know, wise and old man did you learn this uh-huh. off? It's like, well, you know, I just sort of did it myself and made it up. And they're like, oh, are you allowed to do that? And <laughs> I think it's a misunderstanding about there are some, I think it's a very complex conversation about authenticity but also you know particular skills that can only be learned a certain way particular skills that only certain people are allowed to learn yeah I think it's a really it's often a simplified conversation because people want to know answers so they're like well which is it is it do I have to learn this do I have to show respect to this or do I not it's like well Every every situation is different, sort of thing. So, uh, I think people want to go like, oh, you have to treat it this way, you don't have to treat it this way. It's like, no, oh, it depends on what day of the week it is. Depends on if it's raining, you know. Mm. Depends on if you brought your umbrella today. Um, so. Yeah, for sure. And I think that one of the really interesting and dynamic things about your work for me is that I do feel like you play with this idea of that exoticism a bit that the West has for the East. And, you know, as you said, that idea of like, oh, who's, who was the wise old man with the long beard that you learned this from? And you're kind of taking this idea that I think of it as a, is a Western idea, although I don't necessarily know if there's that, that stereotype in Chinese culture as well. And kind of turning it on its head a little bit and and kind of, you know, leaning into the assumptions that an audience maybe in Sydney or Melbourne or New York might make when they come to a painting that has Chinese characters in it and a single image that does have that kind of older, more traditional feel to it. But as you said, the actual content of it can be about throwing up and shitting yourself for instance it's a a beautiful print that you made at cicada press yeah i mean for me it's 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 both Mm. which is i think you know i feel like that's my answer to everything it is (laughs) there is old beard stroking wisdom you know in there yeah um in the culture so it does exist and there's a reason those stereotypes and cliches exist it's about to me, it's about moving beyond the stereotypes and cliches. So it's it's both. It's breaking things down, but you can't, as a person, you know, you can't always just exist as an antith- antithesis to something. Hmm. You sort of just got to go, what is, what is this? You know, what is me? What is it? And, yeah, there's a lot of contradictions, and contradictions can form the negative space you need to form 
you know, the positive that is you sort of thing. But you sort of need to just have a solid thing. And for me, even the, you know, the shitting, pissing um, jokes, they're evident. They're, they're there in the 12th and 14th century texts, mm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the ancient texts, there's, you know, even the idea of conservatism in, in sex and um, identity and all that, they've always been around. That's the thing as well. It's that people think a lot of the conversations and ideas are new and that things I might be presenting are contemporary, but for me, it's sort of the same traditions that have been brought into things that are relevant now, you know, so instead mm-hmm. of rice wine, you know, maybe they're getting drunk on, you know, some Jack Daniels or something. Right. That yeah. again, I'm making things shallow again, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, another kind of side of that being a part of your practice, and I think this is something that we have talked about a little bit before, and I really wanted to ask you, really because I know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are students, are people who are in the process of kind of forming their careers and what they want to make. and. So you are a person of color whose work is wed to that heritage. And I know we've talked a little bit about that idea of getting kind of pigeonholed and and that you're becoming to be maybe expected to make work that's like about one side of your identity, which is more complex. And maybe if you could just offer some words to maybe a student who is let's say a person of color and they want to make work about that experience but maybe they have anxiety about being pigeonholed in that way or just kind of what your thoughts are about that whole long convoluted question that I just posed to you yeah I mean no it's it's a good question it's again it's a complex one I mean every question is a complex question but you know um, <laughs> um, life is complex, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's always depends on the situation, you know, so mm. I, it is a conversation that often comes up because a lot of friends do make a work, do make work about their identity, but a lot of friends don't, mm-hmm. they just make work about something else. But for me, I think a lot of the problems with the conversation Again, this is, I guess, what I was touching about before is that thinking this is a new thing Mm. of, oh, you know, this new identity thing is like, you know, what's hot right now sort of thing. And it's like, no, I think for me, art has since the beginning of time, you know, we're using the term identity or this or that, but it's just been about storytelling of you know, again, going back to when I was talking about children's books and comics, it's been pictures and words about what's happening around people, what people's experiences are. And, you know, as much as I'd like, I'm not going to, I can't escape my experience, Mm. you know. And my experience happens to be that I'm Chinese, Vietnamese, and I was born in Australia. Mm -hmm. So for me, all work, it's, I feel like it's a bit silly when people say my work's not about identity. It's like I feel like all work is about 
someone's identity because mm-hmm. it's made up of the sum of their experiences that only they could have had, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going to get more into it, yeah, there's a very specific sort of pigeonhole that I fit into this sort of thing. In regards to that and needing to make work about that, that's always conversation. So it's never really a good curator, you know, the beginning of the conversation, they may have an idea of what kind of work they want you to make, but the conversations will always be open-ended at the start. Mm-hmm. Um, it will, you know, unless they're learning a work, <laughs> <laughs> they can only pick a work, but if it's about creating new work, it's generally the conversation is pretty open and I naturally want to make work about my identity. Sometimes I don't, you know, something. sometimes it's about something different. It's only natural that, you know, things fall into this sort of thing, you know. Yeah. As we were just talking about, I realized too that while maybe the sort of aesthetic of your work, you know, might be using Chinese characters or having that, as you said, traditional pairing of the text and the image, the actual content is can be quite universal. You know, it'll be love poems to no one. It'll be about death. It'll be about getting so drunk that you throw up. I mean, these are human experiences too that more broadly everyone has experienced in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, my also my use of text is using the Chinese languages. It was my first language along with English. So mm-hmm. it's just literally a thing I know. And a lot of my pictures, I could draw them back into references of Buddhist paintings or Buddhist paintings but also I could just as easily and they'd look just as much as pictures from an R. Crumb book you know, mm-hmm. with their grotesqueness and their weirdness and their sexualness and their grossness you know yeah I think all these things again like I'm trying to say is it's not that clear and that it just depends on sort of who you're talking to. And you know what? If I wasn't talking to you and talking to someone else, my answers would be a lot more different as well, you know. And yeah. Tomorrow my answers might be different, but that's just what it is. It's every conversation sort of different. Mm-hmm. And you just got to, yeah, I, I think, I mean, not you because you're doing an interview, but I think <laughs> people want solid answers because it's a confusing you know, place and art makes things even more confusing and they mm. just want to know what's right and what's wrong. And it's like, well, it's actually very difficult and what's right today might be wrong tomorrow and things will keep on changing and you kind of got to shift and change with them. Yeah. I think that people have this idea that if they can get a solid answer to a question, they don't have to think about it anymore. If you were to say, nope, this is the answer about artists doing work about their identities in the 21st century, then they could say, oh, thank goodness, I don't need to think about this anymore. And they can just kind of put it on a shelf. But of course, in reality, that's truly not how anything works. As he said, it's constantly dynamic and changing and because that's the state of the world. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know if this is from an actual Chinese proverb or from someone's tattoo, but, you know, there's a whole, you know, fluid as the river, but, you know, as rooted, as strong as the mountain sort of thing. So, Mm. you know, in Chinese culture, it's always known you have to be both. So 
these two completely contradictory things. So you have to be as fluid as the river, but you know, as well, even though I'm just contradicting myself here, you do need to have, you know, what is the foundation? What are the roots? What are the basic tenets of, you know, um, life? You know, what are the basic principles of life sort of thing? And how long have they been there sort of thing? Yeah. Mm. But yeah, it's a yeah. little bit of, little bit of both, a little bit of everything. Everything is right. Everything is wrong. You know? <laughs> I also did want to ask you too, because as we're talking about the work that you're doing and a lot of it, particularly some of the earlier work that I was coming across again when I was getting to go through the Cicada Press archives, seems pretty autobiographical. It might be, or at least um, it comes from the eye, the statements, whether or not they're they're true. Again, everything is true and everything is false, but... I'm just more curious about the experience of maybe making work as it directly relates to your family and if that's ever been something that you were worried would offend them or if they've had any strong reaction to or if it's ever made you kind of hesitate in any way um, to actually tell a story like about your aunt drinking an entire soup bowl full of rice wine um, when she, you know, had been questioned about whether or not she could do it, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I think definitely my family likes to be very private about things. Mm. I think I never really considered it, and it's going back to that thing of this is my experience, this is um, the extension of my parents and my relative experiences. I love my experience because I was there, you know. Mm. I think it's something I've questioned recently. I've worked with my mum quite a bit on some performances and with her family history. It's at what point do our parents' experiences, you know, uh, at what point are they ours and at what point are they not? And at what point are we sort of using um, that? uh, What point are we using other people's stories? And I think this idea of ethics comes a lot in um, story. In, in writing, you know, or, you know, using people's stories or in photography, people's pictures when they don't have any agency, you know, with that right. sort of thing. So I've sort of stopped doing that. Um, it's funny I'm, I'm saying that to you because I'm writing a, writing a bunch of short stories to my um, parents' stories. <laughs> but with my art practice, I've sort of stepped away from that. I, I've done that quite a bit. and. Uh, yeah, I, I, for me, I do that every couple of years with whatever I'm doing. I think it's good practice to sort of not get caught up in the riptide of, you know, what you're doing and step back and reflect and go, oh, is what I'm doing good, bad, beneficial to the community? What what am I doing and why am I doing it? Yeah, sort of speaking of, I guess, of, of community as well, I've left to while we still have time just maybe to chat a little bit about your experiences at cap studio in chiang mai as the chiang mai art on paper studio run by our mutual dear friend uh kitty kong and you said you go there maybe a couple times a year to make etchings and i don't know if you can just kind of speak to that experience and how it maybe influences your 
creative practice to be in that particular space and what it's like to work with collaborative printers as well and and what that experience is like for you. It's a pretty long-winded story, which I'll give a short thing to, but Peter Kong runs Cap Studio, Chiang Mai Art on Paper. He studied in, uh, I think he did his, was it his master's at, at Kofa. I think it was his and master's, he studied, yeah. Yeah, he studied under Michael Kempson, who was running his Sakata Press model at the time, which was um, cla- um, custom printing workshop classes in the university model where students could be involved in the press. And so he was fascinated, Kitikong was fascinated by this model and um, they had nothing like this in Thailand. And so I, I don't even think they had much of a printmaking history. I don't want to overstep my historical accuracy <laughs> of Thailand here, but... Yeah, I think I've he- have heard Kong say that as well, that Thailand doesn't actually have a really strong historical tradition of printmaking. Um, unlike some other Asian countries, yeah. But I guess even contemporary-wise, you know, it's it's often which teachers bring what in. So he, he started his press in um, Chiang Mai, um, and then I met him once in Sydney, and then I met him again in San Francisco at the CPI conference. A big group with um, Ben Rack, who I started Throwdown Press with, and then Mark Bovey, who I studied under at Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. Michael Kempson was there, and um, you were there, and Kita Kong was there, and he just—it it was probably his fifth time hassling me to come to Thailand, and I just never had the money or the time. And then finally went over, and it was just really great, you know, how he works is—it's all about relationships for him, so. Mm-hmm. I sort of went over for a trip and he made me do prints. I feel like that's what happens all the time. Even now, sometimes I would be like, oh, look, I'm heading over. I don't really want to do any work. I just want to hang out with you guys. And he'll have plates ready for me. Yeah. And I land sort of thing. So. I feel like I've had that exact same conversation with him about like, I just, you know, I don't need to see any work. I don't need to do any curatorial stuff. Let's just hang out. And then the next thing you know, I'm, you know, showing up for tea at some artist's house half an hour outside of town (laughs) he's just he's amazing that way I think that's a lot of what it is yeah Yeah, it's it's like your life isn't segmented it's you know if your life is in the arts it's in the arts you know Mm -hmm. yeah every single aspect of sort of thing yeah so it's it was really great going over there because you know being friends with all the staff and him and I would do work often, but often we'd just sit around and eat food and just go visit museums or whatever. So, yeah, for me, it was a sort of this working holiday, but it always felt more like a holiday to me, sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, in terms of how it's like working there, yeah, I can't explain. I've worked because I came up through Cicada Press through the class, Michael Kempson ran. And then helped out quite a bit after the classes ended. And I ran, I'd like to say this is a very um, grand term because mm-hmm. I didn't actually, but I ran the LIFO printmaking for Cicada Press. Mm. Did maybe six or seven unsuccessful prints. It, it was a very <laughs> difficult um, process 
for someone who'd only done it for a few years to try and master. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's just amazing for for all the place different places I've been that it's so different everywhere, but that it's always about you know the communal space, the community working together, whether you like it or not. Yeah, being you know working with every different master printer um, has. You know, they're different prints every time right. in different places. Yeah, it's just a really lovely way to work and travel. And it's almost like a secret society you've entered when you're with print. <laughs> totally. Other mediums don't really get I'm Actually, you know what? Probably ceramicists understand. But yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's just really lovely, you know. And yeah. I think a lot of people who fall into the, medium you know it's they find the same thing that it's just a lovely thing to bring together it's also you know probably a lot of printmakers wouldn't agree with um the value placed on prints but mm. you know they're often worth a lot less but you get more of them and that in itself is another for me community building tool of mm. you know trades mm. and being you know more people being able to own this thing you've made it's like why should one thing that you've painted be owned by one rich person which no one else will ever see you know yeah um i think it's more in the spirit of what i think art should be you know more about community and people you know and that's that's what's been great about cap it's he puts um kitakong puts you know people people first sort of thing absolutely yeah. yeah i that definitely that came home to me in a big way when I was taking back $10,000 worth of cap prints back to Davidson once and the airline completely lost them. And Kong just said, don't worry about it. He was like, I don't want that to hurt our friendship. Like, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, he just was like, look, get whatever insurance you can, but don't even worry about it. So he's he is really amazing that way. Well, I feel like that is a beautiful place to wrap up our chat. Um, before we sign off totally, could you tell our dear listeners where they can find you and follow you and see your work? Yeah, I guess. Oh, I'm represented by two galleries. So Station Gallery in Melbourne. Um, and chalk horse in Sydney mm. and then I mean my website's just jason beautiful um, yeah Excellent. yeah that's that's it but, um, keep can... on keep on printing that's that's my <laughs> thing to sign off on I yeah. love that <laughs> absolutely um, well I'll put links to um, station and chalk horse and your website all in the show notes for this so people can see a little bit more about what you do and thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me Jason it was great to catch up and just learn even more about your work so it was great oh, no problem so it's always great to catch up well that's our show for this week join me again next week when my guest will be Ellen Hack. Ellen's interest in process and philosophy makes her a fascinating speaker. And we chat about the ways she uses printmaking and its capacity for multiplicity to explore the concepts of identity and originality. 
you won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.